0: we're typically seeing about double the yield. And the way to think about it is you, to get there, you know, you need to be increasing your gross rents by a fair amount because you do have those added costs, you know, potentially maintenance, but certainly of utilities, which are bundled in yeah. and, you know, an hour fee, you know, I got those three kids. It's very important. You, know, you got to pay pass what But yeah, exactly. That's the concept. We typically shoot for about double the yield.
1: Hello, everyone. Welcome to the fourth season of Ready to Scale. I'm your host, Ellie Perlman. Real estate investing is not rocket science, but it's not a fairy tale either. It's an incredible investment vehicle that builds and grows wealth. I have done it, and this is why so many of the wealthiest people in America and in the world, actually, invest in real estate as well. Listen in every week to learn about all the different real estate asset classes, which strategies experienced and successful investors use to live their best lives and the processes to do it. Don't reinvent the wheel. Just listen in every week to grow your knowledge along with me and to move your finances to a place where you can live an extraordinary life. This show is sponsored by my company, Blue Lake Capital, where we help passive investors grow their wealth through large multifamily investments and funds. To learn more about my company and invest in with me, visit www.blake-capital.com. Welcome to Ready to Scale Season 4. Let's get started. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Ready to Scale. I'm your host, Ellie Perlman, broadcasting from Sunny California, a little bit warmer today. It is January 12th. We're recording this, so I'm very, very fortunate to be here. And today on the show, I am hosting Frank Furman. So Frank is a very interesting investor. He's investing in an asset class that I am personally not very familiar with, and I would love to learn about it. So I'm going to be more educated, and hopefully, so do you. And it's called shared housing. So Frank is a COO and founding team member of PadSplit. And that's a privatized housing company that is focused on providing affordable housing. Now, formerly, Frank served in the US Marine Corps as an officer, an infantry officer. But the interesting thing is that he has a BS in aeronautical engineering from the US Naval Academy and an MS in applied physics from John Hopkins University very smart guy. He and his wife live in Atlanta and they have two children. Welcome to the show, Frank.
0: Hey, thank you so much for having me. Though I, I might need to update my bio because we also have a six-month-old daughter now, so up to three. So oh, I need wow. To, I need to update that. Yeah, it's been busy <laughs> at the Furman house.
1: All right. Congratulations. Congratulations. So, Frank, can you share with me and the listeners how you got to real estate? How did you find yourself investing in affordable housing.
0: Sure. So I, I suppose I kind of stumbled into it as some do. But so my one of my co-founders, Atticus, is actually my brother. So I've known him going on 15 years now. And you know, he's always been a real estate. He was an architecture major. He started his career as kind of a you know real estate analyst, then became a broker. And he's always been in this world. And as he was getting his start on the investment side. He was raising money from family and friends and did whatever he could to bring money in the door. And I was I was one of those family and friends, right, on a, on a very small scale. But I was always an LP. I was never on the operating side. So I I kind of came into it if likely, you know, as, as really a passive investor, and you know, learned a little bit, but you know, wasn't on the day to day side. And over time, you know, got a little bit of a taste for it. And I moved around a ton. I mean, when I moved to Atlanta six years ago, it was my ninth move in nine years. So part of that was due to the Marine Corps and I'd been in consulting. So I was, I wasn't used to buying homes. I was renting, I was kind of moving around, you know, flexibility was key for me. But then, you know, we were sort of both at a point in our careers where he'd set up a string of successful real estate businesses, real estate investment, general construction, hard money lending. And but he'd kind of taken his self, you know, himself out of the day to day. And then I was in a position where I was kind of bored, honestly, with what I was doing. It's kind of Ratcheted down my hours a bit and, you know, I was looking for something new. And it's like, you know, I've had this idea kind of kicking around the back of my head, this shared housing model. You know, he'd been doing it. He really kind of stumbled into it in 2009. He bought a house in Southwest Atlanta that was, you know, it was kind of cut up funny, but at the time he was getting a start, he was just buying anything he could. And he buys it, and the neighbors come by, Otis and Mitch, and they say, Hey, you know, our house is being foreclosed on. We're getting kicked out. We want to rent rooms in your rooming house. He's like, I don't, you know, I don't know what that is. I don't know what rooming house is. And they're like, well, you know, here's the deal. This is what it is. And we'll pay you a hundred bucks a week. And he looks at it and he says, okay, well, I can get 800 from the housing authority, or I've got five bedrooms. And if I get a hundred a week, it's, okay, let me try and make that work. So we did. And it was successful. And then did another one in 2009. And that was successful too. And there's another one 2012, and that was successful too. But it was always this kind of side part of his business that wasn't, it was a little more operationally intensive, always had some sort of limitations, but, you know, fast forward to 2017, we we're having this first conversation and he's like, I've done it. I've been doing it for years. I know how profitable it can be. I know it's double the yield, you know, and as we started talking about, you know, what has changed in the market? You know, certainly the price of housing and the need for affordable housing conversation around it really changed. And then certainly the regulatory environment had really changed, and and the fintech environment. So in 2009, it was a cash business. You know, literally, you would install a metal box on the wall, and people would drop in money orders or cash, and pick it up every week. Whereas now, everybody has a smartphone. Everybody can you know get prepaid debit and pay through the phone, and all pay electronically. So the world had really kind of changed since I'm doing it. So we that was where kind of the original kind of concept came from, and kind of build it. So yeah, I. I'm more stumbled into it to be to be honest i guess like with like with most things
1: awesome and and how long was that how long ago
0: so we really got to start in 2017 and then really in 2018 we started bringing on customers and employees and so on it's really 2018 to' four years
1: got it four years So let's transition and talk about the asset of shared housing. Can you describe to our, our listeners, what is shared housing? What is that asset class? What does it mean?
0: Yeah, so what it really means is taking a traditional asset, be it a single family home or, or an apartment, and breaking it up such that multiple unrelated entities are sharing common areas within that space, right? So you kind of multiple agreements for multiple independent actors within the space. So, you know, we all live in shared houses to an extent, you know, or any of us who aren't single, I suppose. I I share a house with six people in my house. I share bathrooms, I share space, but we're not autonomous entities, right? You know, we're all, all kind of one family, but same sort of concept. So what it looks like in practice is, you know, again, we're in apartments and homes, but predominantly homes. And it's where people are renting an individual room. The bedroom is theirs, that's their private space. And then they're sharing common areas, such as in many cases bathrooms, but certainly kitchen or you know, other kind of common space parking. So it's it's all about kind of multiple individual entities, unrelated entities, sharing common space in, in sort of within a traditionally rentable asset.
1: And I'm assuming that doing this is more profitable for you as a landlord than to just rent the house to a family. Because then you maximize the amount of money you can get per square footage or per you know room.
0: Exactly. I mean, you wouldn't do it if it weren't, right? So again, it, there's an asset strategy in that it works for the right kind of asset. So typically larger assets that have more bedrooms and so on. But the way to think about it is for the right kind of renter, people pay a high fraction of what they would pay for a studio apartment for you know what they really want is the bedroom, right? And they want access to the bathroom, they want access. So it's kind of deconstructing a single-family asset that oftentimes is built for families and not necessarily for renters, built for homeowners. It's kind of how we think about housing stock generally. Right. And maximizing your revenue-generating units, which in this case is bedrooms. So again, you know, it doesn't work for every kind of asset, but for the right kind of asset, you're oftentimes doubling your yield.
1: Doubling. And that's you actually just answered my next question, which was, Talk to me in numbers. How much more money are you making? Because there's a certain amount of you know extra work that comes with it. Because you're not just dealing with one renter, you know, one family per house. You're dealing with multiple renters. So there's got to be some significant additional income that comes with it that can justify the extra work.
0: Exactly, and we're quite involved with landlords as they're doing this on our platform. So there's a little bit of a self-selecting there in that we we kind of wave people off of opportunities that are going to be just a little bit better. You know, we want them mm-hmm. to be a lot better so that it's worth their while. But you were typically seeing about double the yield. And the way to think about it is you, to get there, you know, you need to be increasing your gross rents by a fair amount because you do have those added costs, you know, potentially maintenance, but certainly of utilities, which are bundled in. Yeah. And, you know, an hour fee, you know, I got those three kids, it's very important. You know, got to pay pass what. But yeah, exactly. That's the concept. We typically shoot for about doubling the yield.
1: Got it. And Frank, during COVID, I would assume that things have changed and maybe they haven't, but have you seen any changes when it comes to demand or renters more careful about taking a room in a shared housing, you know, asset, or maybe it's something that they do prefer because they want to be around people more or they need to save some money. How did COVID impact your investments?
0: So it's a really interesting question and it, Impacted in lots of ways. Some we kind of knew going into it or you know knew early on that are very intuitive, some that we didn't expect. Some were headwinds, some were tailwinds. So on the to kind of break it down, certainly in the very first couple of weeks, so call it kind of late March, early April, things were looking pretty grim at Pad Split. And I was, I don't know, hmm. in a fetal position somewhere, I don't get my resume ready. Things were looking pretty tough. But it turned around very quickly and we really bounced up to similar levels of demand or even higher. And part of that is the demographic we serve. So mm. a lot of other co-living companies not only struggled but went out of business during that time, but they typically served a much higher income type customer. So there were, you know, there were and there used to be far more, you know, upscale co-living companies that serve, you know, tier one metro. So, you know, you're in LA, you want to be in a premium zip code, you're doing well, but not quite well, you know, young person getting your start. That sort of cliched, you know, California dreamer who's out there, you know, first corporate job and those kind of people, they exist. But when COVID hit, you know, they had options, right? They could move back in with family. They could move to a different metro area. They certainly didn't want to pay, you know, a really, you know, they don't want to pay Manhattan rent and then be stuck in lockdown in Manhattan. So they left. And so those companies really, really, really struggled. For better or for worse, you know, we serve a much lower income demographic, much you know, fewer remote workers. So people are geographically tied to their work fewer kind of family connections and social network to kind of fall back on. So again, for better for us, better for our business, those folks needed housing, they needed just as much or more, right? So they stayed because there weren't other options. They couldn't move back in with mom and dad they couldn't get friends, They couldn't work remotely. So demand was really not impacted for us. Now, on the, the headwind side, there were other challenges, right? So our business works a lot better when people aren't home. Right. And that's not just going to work, which people still do, but even just going out and staying out of the house. You know, if you have six people in house, always a house, boy, is better if they're two home, you know, at any, at any given time from, in terms of parking and noise and all those things. So, you know, that's something that over time, you know, stresses people out. And everyone's a little stressed out during COVID yeah. and being cooped up. So that, that yep. impacts us as well in the house dynamics. And then, of course, you know, as everyone knows, housing prices have just skyrocketed during this time for all sorts of reasons that. You know, we don't want to bore each other with, but that impacted our investors really, because we went from a pretty hot real estate market in you know late 2019, early 2020 to one that became even more heated, especially where we're, you know, we're not in New York, you know, we're not in kind of San Francisco, we're Sunbelt, you know, Texas through Florida and so on. So those markets in particular, people increasingly went to and you know homes that maybe you could have bought for two hundred thousand dollars two years ago. You know appreciate twenty percent or thirty percent, and the investors are to a large extent eating that and it's you know cutting into yields. Now that's happening across all real estate investments, but it's happening to us all the same. So from yep. a growth perspective, we were there was a little bit of a bottleneck there, and inventory is obviously super
1: low. Yep, absolutely, and this is a pain that I think everyone is is feeling right now. I would like to switch gears a bit and talk about the strategy. And you have a very interesting, you know, income strategy revenue split. Can you talk a little bit more about that strategy?
0: Absolutely. So we're horribly like three businesses in one, I suppose. So our, our core business is a two-sided marketplace. So think very similar to Airbnb, right? We don't own the assets; landlords list them on our platform. You know, manage them so on. They are the hosts. We install the. We literally, we sell lots of things from Airbnb that terminology is one of them, right? So our our host list of platform, our list of properties, our members, residents live in them and we take a percentage of gross rents. So that's a core business. Mm. That's, you know, the bulk of it. That is kind of our venture back play. We also have a subsidiary property management company that provides turnkey property management services in Atlanta. That company also takes a percentage of, of rents as their business. So it's, a little bit of a more or less a traditional property management company on that front, and our third business is we have a Sidecar Fund that both acts as a you know general partner in a traditional real estate fund, so it buys you know obviously raises money, but then buys, renovates, manages properties, and takes a cut of the upside in more traditional real estate fund kind of way, and then side benefit being providing supply their a platform, and then they also do turnkey properties for investors who are interested, maybe they're not real, or they're experienced real estate investors, but are interested and, and wanna buy and wanna be owners, but they wanna be passive. So we're actually buying, renovating, and selling these turnkey assets to investors. So they own the actual real estate, but we're managing it, acquiring, renovating, managing it full stack. And so we're kind of doing all those things all sort of at once, or so you know, God bless our finance team to deal with all the complexities. But our core is a percentage of
1: revenues. Interesting. And then also, Frank, an interesting part of the strategy is social impact, which I know a lot of investors like to use this phrase, but actually doing it is another thing. And you're offering housing without a minimum credit score. I want you to talk a little bit about that because it's interesting because you always have to balance out between the desire to help other people and to be involved in social impact with the need to protect your money and protect your investment. So can you walk me through first and foremost, you know, the kind of need to be involved in social impact and what it means for you?
0: So for me, personally, you know, I'll take it just as an individual, not as much for pad split necessarily, but I've always had this core conviction that, you know, the reason I do what I do is kind of stick it to the people who are like, oh, you know, we have an affordable housing problem. What we need to do is just pump more money into it. That'll fix it. I'm like, Clearly this isn't working. That's insane. You know, where we do more of it, it, it's, it's almost made things worse. So, you know, for me, I look at it and say, if you can generate above market yields in the creation of affordable housing, you don't have an affordable housing problem because you will be tapping into and leveraging the energy intellect effort and capital of private investors to solve a problem. So, I mean, there's, for example, you know, there's no problem with affordable burgers in this country because, investors have made a way to make that profitable. And if you want a dollar burger, you know, it's available to you. Like there is yep. no, there is no problem. So, you know, let's kind of trust investors to solve it. And so for me, it's a matter of there is a huge unmet need. And it takes innovation. I'm Sure, there's a technology side, but really around the business model to tap into the entrepreneurial need to solve problems, you know, when it's when it's in your interest. So, you know, what I feel very strongly about is there are people who they're working. They want to have their own space. They don't want a subsidy. They don't want a handout. They really want to do right and pay for what they, you know, but they also don't need everything that we, you know, we think we need necessarily. And, you know, a lot of times people come to me and they say, oh, you know, I kind of get what you're doing. I bet my kids would get it. You know, I'll ask them, you know, millennials and stuff. I'm like, no, 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 no. Ask your grandma because, you know, this is how people used to live. If you were a, you know, a factory worker in the 60s and you're you know, a single guy, you didn't Get an apartment. You boarded, and if you were a you know a woman who was typing in New York City in the sixties, you didn't get an apartment. You boarded, you know, or you, or you lived in you know one of these houses with other women and that kind of thing. People have roommates. You know, I've, I've always lived with other people. You know, I've essentially never lived alone. It's what people do to bring down the costs. You know, unfortunately, in my house. I'm the only one paying the mortgage, but you know that's that's the life I chose. But everyone shares housing. What's weird is for one person at one apartment, but that's essentially what we ask of singles even long-term singles to do and it just seems kind of crazy to me that the kind of things that I was able to do as a student or you know when I was young in the Marine Corps and I shared a house with buddies and so on and I've always been able to use shared houses <laughs> to drive down this major you know the biggest line item you have in your budget but for some reason if someone's a security guard or they're working at fast food or they've moved to Atlanta from Detroit and they don't have family they aren't allowed to do it like that's just that's right. unseemly so for me it's kind of it's kind of sticking it to the people who think, yeah, that's the natural order of things. So I don't know, maybe I'm more of a contrarian than, than other people and shouldn't want to be like me. But that's that's kind of why I get into it. And ultimately I think that when you have a product that people want, that is social impact. And it doesn't need to be anything sort of greater than that but providing value in the marketplace. So for us, you know, we make it possible for someone to get housing at a much, much lower price and in a much more flexible model, right? Because that's one thing that, you know, not everyone quite He's on initially that a big barrier to housing and getting housing and accessing housing in America is that, you know, landlords aren't, aren't dummies, right? You know, why would you rent to someone with low income when there is a higher credit risk? Well, you know, they might leave, I might have to evict them. Certain markets getting an eviction done takes a really, really long time. It can be very, very expensive. So what do you do? You up your barrier to entry. You know, you don't just charge a security deposit, you charge a big one. You don't just do first month's rent, you do first and last month's rent, you know, and so on and so forth. And that barrier becomes so high that even if someone could afford the house, they can't because you know who has four thousand dollars to move in when you're you know you're making eighteen bucks an hour. So we kind of wanted to turn on on its head and say you know what if we lower the barrier to entry, but both also the barrier to exit, and say all right, hey, short term if things don't work out or doesn't work out with other people, you can transfer to go from there to really and your point, you have to balance access and improving access with risk mitigation for landlords because, right. again, if landlords aren't making the return, they're not going to do it. And so we need landlords to get the return so that it's in the best interest. So it's finding that balance and optimization point that we're hyper-focused on, but we are hyper-focused on investor outcomes because when they're good, they do what humans do and they brag about and they tell their friends and they expand their portfolio. And when they're bad, they take properties off the platform and they tell their friends not to do it. And that's bad for Padsport. So we are Mm -hmm. hyper-focused on investor returns, first and foremost. So that's, you know, we do other things that maybe we don't have to do. You know, we do credit reporting through a company called Asuzu, and they're they're friends of ours. So, you know, it's one of those things that is, you know, we feel passionately about that, again, improving access and improving outcomes sometimes involves a little bit of extra effort on our part. But, you know, most renters, one of the problems they have with credit is that the biggest lineup they have paying the rent isn't included in their credit score because most landlords don't have the ability to do it, or you know there's incremental costs. But we've managed to set that up, and because we actually do weekly payments, you know if you're living in a pad split home over six months, you're not paying six times; you're paying you know 26 times for those 26 weeks. So you're getting a lot more data points sent to all the bureaus. So we people who increase their credit scores by 60, 100, 150 points all the time. For doing exactly what they would do otherwise, which is to pay their rent, but they're really kind of ramping it up quickly because oftentimes they're thin file. So there's definitely aspects of some some areas we've done better than others. You know, that's certainly the credit reporting as well, where I think we've done pretty well.
1: Awesome. And then you know, speaking of the process, what other steps have you been taking? to offset the risk of basically working with a lower-level income and basically accepting tenants without a minimum credit score?
0: Yeah. So we do screening, so it's not as though there's uh, – it's like, okay, we just take anybody. We're still doing mm-hmm. background yep. check, credit check, income verification, employment verification. You know, that's certainly a big part of it. You know, some of it is—is is it within the agreements and kind of working in both ways. They're furnished rooms, so in many places you can fall under kind of more of an innkeeper exclusion and, and along those lines. But giving the flexibility of people to transfer, you know, and, and so I'll, I'll give an example. So when we look at the challenges that people have with evictions and so on, sometimes you know a renter is upset with their landlord because maintenance isn't getting done right, so they're yeah. mad and they don't pay their rent and the landlord says, okay, I'm going to evict you. And maybe the maintenance shouldn't have done, maybe it shouldn't have done, you know, who knows, maybe someone's at fault. But the point is, you have kind of a failed personal relationship that has resulted in an eviction that is bad for everybody. You know, you've kind of this negative cycle that that takes place where everyone loses, right? Landlord loses, renter loses. It's terrible. Because we allow transfers within our network, let's say for the sake of argument, Ellie, you're living in a pad split home. And you, know, you don't like this thing about the house, right? The maintenance is bad. It you know, is what it is. Well, you're not locked into a long-term lease. So there's, you kind of de-escalate things a bit. And you, know, you can, of course, rate the maintenance ticket that you submitted. You can rate the house. You, know, you, you have a couple ways to sort of get back at the landlord, if you will. But whatever, maybe you're just upset. Maybe you're upset with someone else in the home. It doesn't really matter. Well, you aren't locked in. You can leave anytime. So there's no matter of saying, okay, well, if I break my lease, I pay. And if I stay, I pay. And I'm mad either way, you know, that's that's bad. Hey, you can leave anytime, you can transfer another home. Doesn't matter what it's for, or maybe your job, you know, you move to another side of town, you want to be closer to work, that's fine. And so just the ability to give people some flexibility there reduces some of it just by virtue of, hey, we don't have to have this kind of brinksmanship in a lot of those situations. Another one that we're really kind of passionate about is being very customer focused on the renter side in a way that most landlords aren't. So I'm a landlord, so I say this with love, but most landlords are lazy, right? Why do we bill on the first? Well, we've always done it that way. The bank likes it, our accountant likes it, the lender likes it. You know, I don't know, I've never thought about it. To give a counterexample, our friends at rent center are much smarter and I say French jokingly, but you know, I need to lay away furniture stores. They bill at the end of the month because they know that people pay bills sequentially, especially people who don't have a lot of money. So, and we all do this a little bit, right? Bill comes in, you pay, Bill comes in, you pay. So, I mean, you evict people and they say, peel back the onion. How do we get here? It's like, well, you know, I paid my cell phone bill. Okay, fine. Well, I paid my furniture bill. I don't want to lose my sofa. It's like, well, it's a terrible idea. You paid your sofa bill and now this, you lose the sofa anyway. But that's just not how people are wired. So by bundling things and by billing weekly, you know, the way we think about it is when's the first of the month? I don't know. But when's Friday? Well, Friday's in two days. I get paid on Friday, get billed on Friday. So we're kind of always on top of people. And because we've bundled furniture, we've bundled utilities all into one payment, it's much simpler for you know lower income folks with fewer resources, maybe a lower level of financial literacy to say, hey, I pay my passport bill, I'm okay. And maybe their cell phone bill, you know, people always pay their cell phone bill. But you know, it makes it much simpler and more intuitive. So we get ultimately very, very high collections rates by being more customer focused and kind of building the process around the renter rather than around the landlord's processes and then pad splits that interface where you know you one house at has six bedrooms you might get 25 or 30 payments a month well that's a lot for a landlord to handle but we do all of that work we do all the collections work and then remit one payment to the landlord so their lenders happy and their accounts happy and so on and so forth
1: that's very interesting and i think just finding that right balance between impact investing and making profitable investments, you know, that's that's something that I know many investors are striving to do. And we're also looking into adding some social impact elements in our investments as well. Because, yeah, everyone is making money, but you also, I think you have an obligation to give back because not everyone is fortunate enough to be a landlord. And I think it's the right thing to do. And it's a way to kind of balance the forces out between renters and owners. I really appreciate your time, Frank. We have arrived to the last part of the show, the lightning round questions, five quick questions that I ask all my guests. Yeah. All right. So the first one is what's your favorite hobby?
0: So my favorite hobby, other than, of course, playing with my kids and so forth, I love to run. This sounds like super boring, but it's kind of the one time that I, I get to be in the way and like with my thoughts and just kind of out and about. So, I mean, I'll run for an hour, hour and a half, you know, whatever, and just kind of wow. get out. I'm, you know, I don't need anybody else. Maybe I just you know don't like being with other people. I don't know. But it gives me sort of my solitude and just sort of space.
1: All right. And what's the one thing that people don't know about you?
0: Whew, there are lots of things people don't know about me. Choose uh,
1: one. Yeah. I, I <laughs> the think, most interesting yeah, one.
0: The most interesting one. Wow. So this, most people don't know because I'm a former, or I'm a Marine, and you know, former infantry officer, but I love musicals and people meet me and they're like, there's no way. And I'm like, It's like, I know every word to Les Mis and Ren and all these things. You know, it's just, it's not what people expect. So, you know, I I would surprise people.
1: Yeah, my husband is a big fan of Les Mis. Interesting. What do you wish you had known, Frank, when you just started investing in real estate?
0: Besides the fact that, you know, I probably got started too late and too little, which I think (laughs) is a common lament for a lot of Uh people.
1: uh You
0: know, I I think the one thing that I wish I knew was that, there's very little that people haven't done. You know, I think everyone's like, everyone kind of thinks everything's like new and like you're inventing things and so on. And, you know, a lot of times you're not, like someone's done it before. There's a lot of people you can learn from. And I see this all the time, certainly in the startup space, but, you know, people think there's like, oh, what if I do this one thing? It'll kind of change everything. And oh, I'll kick to the curb, all these things that people have done. And there's a reason why we do most of the things we do. And I'm all for kind of, changing things up and doing things differently but anytime you hear someone say like hey we're going to praise in a totally different way i just sort of thought "Ooh, that sounds like a terrible idea like maybe there's a reason why we do a lot of these silly things the way that we do them. and I'll, I'll give you one example specific to our business is when we got started you know we knew that a lot of other rooming houses used deadbolts on interior doors and we were very smug in the way that only you know young entrepreneurs could be smug and we thought that's so unsafe and it's not safe for the fire and it's against building code and these guys are idiots and they don't care. And so we put keyed locks on all the interior doors. And then we started having people call us with lockouts, and people would lock themselves out at all hours. And mm-hmm. finally it dawned on us that people would use deadbolts because you can't lock your key in the room. And, you know, when someone goes to take a shower and they accidentally lock the door and it's a Friday night at midnight, you know, no one can be happy in terms of getting, you know, they either break down the door or they wait an hour or they wait until the next morning. Everyone's unhappy. So a lot of the smugness goes away when you think, you know, people have done this before. And sometimes people do things for a reason. So having just a little bit of humility around certainly respecting your elders. But it's like you find a fence in the middle of the forest, like a Chesterton, you know, Chesterton's fence. You just say, before I tear this down, maybe I should think, like, until I understand why it's here, maybe I should let it be for a minute and then tear down later.
1: All right. Well, Frank, if one of our listeners or some of them would want to reach out to you and talk about investing, all of them, where can they find you? What's the best way to reach out to you?
0: Best way to reach out to me is just an email on frank at padspill.com. I'm super easy to find. You can, of course, go to our website at padspill.com. And if you do so, one of our much more helpful and friendly sales reps will reach out, probably with better information in a more timely manner. But I'm, of course, easy to find, you know, kind of anywhere. I'm the only Frank at Split, So I'm easy. You can call me anytime.
1: All right. Awesome. Frank, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it.
0: Ellie, thank you so much for having me on the show. Appreciate it.
1: Absolutely. And for you, the listeners, I hope that that was interesting for you and fun as much as it was for me. Be bold, be great, and create your own kind of extraordinary life. I'll see you on the next episode.